we need to learn with this multidisciplinary approach that there needs to be a tailored, unique approach to every single patient. So it's not going to be as easy as, um, oh yeah, every patient comes in, FND diagnosis, so you get your five sessions this, physio there, EMDR there. It's not the right thing for every patient and it needs to be tailored to individual patients as well. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by neurologist Dr. Alex Lane. So you, um, you're a neurologist and we'll talk about functional neurological disorders. How did you come across this? Um, as we get into it, it's probably not the, you know, mainstream as such for, for neurologists who are probably more sort of nuts and bolts around, um, you know, neurological disease, obviously. So how did you get into this sort of area? Because you've been a real pioneer, at least it sounds like in Australia here. Yeah, kind of weirdly enough. Yes. But, uh, it shouldn't be the case and, and it's funny you say that i think you're right but it should be mainstream because it's something we all see so commonly and we all learn about weird and wonderful things and rare diseases that even as neurologists many of us will never encounter in life all of us every day see functional disorders and none of us learned anything about it which i find so weird um and but truth is i did not know about functional disorders either as part of my training and when I finished training. Um, but when I very first encountered that when it's, uh, was when I did a fellowship in movement disorder. So I guess my, my day job is I'm a movement disorder neurologist and I run the movement disorder service at PA. So I look after people with Parkinson's and gait disturbances and tremors, so uncontrollable shaking. So I guess all the things that don't move properly um, um, as caused by the, by the human brain and nervous system. And when I did my training then and did this fellowship in movement disorders, my old boss, who was amazing, truly, I don't want to say a bad word about him, an amazing neurologist, but I think he would also not be offended if I said an old school neurologist. And he was one of those figures of immense authority across Queensland. So like people would send patients through to him from far and wide for an assessment. And he would do like a quick assessment for a few minutes and then come up with a diagnosis and then they go again. And everyone admired him. Um, everyone was, well, I guess, a bit intimidated by him. But then the weird thing I noticed during training when I did clinics with him, he would often inflict before the clinic through patient charts and go through the notes like, oh, uh, Alex, Alex, that, that, that's one for you. You see that one, and, and for God's sake, don't get those patients back. And I'm, it's kind of so weird. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, so comfortable and so um, fond of his knowledge and, and so so good otherwise. Why is he getting so tense? And I, I actually thought even scared of those, of some patients. And as I learned more about it, I realized after a while, oh, I think that's all the patients with functional neurological disorders where he's getting tense about. And I thought it was really weird that someone who is so good and so authoritative, so scared of, of those kind of disorders as well. So I started reading up about um, these group of disorders a bit more back then. And just as it happens, um, at the time, then I was lining up another fellowship. So fellowships for us um, um, doctors are where you kind of do, I guess, like an apprenticeship where, where yeah. you work with someone uh, in an area where you want to learn more about that. And I was just lining up a fellowship with a specialist unit in movement disorders in Newcastle, as in, in North England, Newcastle, wow. Newcastle up on Tyne. And I'm not sure how you guys in Australia know the European landscape well, but Newcastle is in the very, very north of England and Edinburgh in Scotland is in the very, very south of Scotland. It's about a one hour, one hour, 21 hour, 30 train ride from um, city to city. And as I lined it up, um, I realized, oh, so two of the world authorities in that area seem to work in Edinburgh and just happened to be that I, at a conference, ran into one of those guys called Alan Carson, who gave a talk at one of the conferences. And I kind of sheepishly, um, after the talk, went to him and said, oh, look, I'm 
just about to to move to Newcastle up on time to uh, do a fellowship. Do you think I can kind of join you guys and learn a bit a bit more from you? And lovely guy that he is, he um, agreed for me to um, join them in their unit. So once a week, then I went up to Edinburgh to work with the guys there and learned a lot from them. It was really really inspiring to work with those guys. So that's how it all started. My interest and my passion for FND, so for functional neurological disorders. Okay. All right. So what, um, can you describe what FND is? Um, you know, it's how frequent it is, what's some of the common signs and symptoms? Sure, sure. sure. So um, FNDs of, it's probably easier for the talk if we shorten it to FNDs of stands for functional neurological disorders and probably a good way to look at it. Think of it as a brain software disturbance. So in this human brain, in this computer that we have that controls our bodies, there's kind of two ways that brain or that computer can get in trouble. One is you can break the cable work, so the hardware in the computer. And that's essentially all those what we call organic disorders that um, people can get break the hardware. So if you have a stroke, you knock out a bit of a hardware. If yeah. you have MS, multiple sclerosis, uh, it's an immune response that damages your hardware. If you have Parkinson's disease, you have a process that damages the hardware and so on. So they're all hardware disorders, but you can get also glitches in the brain software. And really what we mean with that is glitches in communication within the different parts um, that, um, that we work with. And that might be communication within the brain. So different parts of the brain that need to work together. There might be communication between brain and outside world or combination a communication between brain and body and vice versa and these glitches in communication that's really what functional neurological disorders are so i think a brain software disturbance is uh, probably a really good yeah. uh, description and analogy for people to have and the other question you asked about is how common they are and i guess that's what i alluded to at the very beginning um i've kind of i'm still stunned that I kind of stand out as such a weirdo for something that is so common. So functional neurological disorders are the second most common cause of presentations of patients to neurology outpatients across the world. And it's nothing unique to Brisbane, nothing unique to Queensland or, or, or wherever. Second most common cause of presentation after headaches. So the only more, more common right. presentation causes headaches. And that's the same in Bundaberg, in Sydney, in mm -hmm. Brisbane. In Kuala Lumpur, that's how common those kind of disorders are. And yeah, with this analogy of software, um, probably resonates really well because when you have a glitch in your software, it can throw off all sorts of weird and wonderful issues with your computer. It sounds like functional neurological disorders can throw off um, any manner of um, signs and symptoms. What sort of, what's the problem? Yeah. depth of it? Yeah, so I, I, so I guess with that, um, when you say a lot of things can happen, I think that's very, very true. So I probably I see a few hundred people with FND a year. So I would have seen a few thousand by now, I guess. I've never seen a patient in my life with FND with only one symptom. So mm -hmm. once the software, once the brain starts glitching, it always shows itself in lots of different symptoms. So when I take patients' histories, I often have patients with 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 different symptoms. Like it's often crazy, like how many different and often very disabling symptoms people can develop. But what are the most common ones? Um, so movement disorders are very common. There might be weakness, like stroke-like weakness, weakness down one side of the body or even whole body weakness. Um, it might be tremor, so uncontrollable shaking is a relatively common movement disorder. It might be gait disturbances when people can't control their gaits properly anymore. Um, another common type of events are what's called dissociative attacks. And we can talk about it afterwards a bit more, but these are events that I hate those terms. People used to call pseudo seizures mm. or, or non-epileptic seizures, but I probably hearing those terms, I guess people can imagine more how they look like. Um, they often attacks that can look like epileptic seizures. So unresponsiveness or reduced levels of responsiveness and often uncontrollable shaking as if someone had an, had an epileptic seizure. So they probably the more common types of presentations but as I said beforehand, typically people have a whole variety of different symptoms. Can that include some um, symptoms that may, um, some of our audience 
may um, see like fatigue and fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. um, I think POTS even as well. Do, do you see yeah, some common totally, somatic conditions like that? Totally, totally. So, so keep in mind, and I, um, whenever I have discussions either like this or with my patients, I try to make clear as well, I'm a neurologist, I'm not a cardiologist, I'm not an immunologist, yeah. and I want to stay within my area of expertise as well. But I guess one can't help but see the similarities. One can't help but see the overlaps. And I guess by, like you, I'm someone who's just fascinated by these kind of groups of disorders and what, what kind of you try to get a concept around it, what goes wrong in the body. Um, and one can't help but think about that as well. What do all these processes have in common? So I guess, first of all, with chronic fatigue, chronic pain, um, in my personal experience, opinion is part of this spectrum of functional disorders uh, functional neurological disorders there are some patients with that really more pure chronic fatigue syndrome whereas i get probably chronic fatigue syndrome is probably the better diagnosis to give them but even for people with a diagnosis of chronic fatigue fatigue syndrome the vast majority of them i'm sure if you actually were to go through the history properly you would actually see there several other functional neurological symptoms as well. So there's that. And same with uh, fibromyalgia, chronic pain. And there's so much overlap between those. Probably just to illustrate that, we've just um, done a study looking at um, patients with functional movement disorders. And just as part of the, of the study, for any patient who signed up for the study and participated, we did a questionnaire with them about other symptoms. And 100% of patients said they have chronic fatigue as well. Right. And 80% of patients uh, reported chronic pain. So I truly think this is part of the kind of different ends of the spectrum of the same spectrum of things going wrong in the brain. And I guess the other um, diagnoses that you mentioned beforehand, IBS um, or POTS, so POTS for postural orthostatic tachycardia um, syndrome, I can't help but see the similarities as well. So certainly I see patients with FND who are diagnosed with FND, who then also have diagnosis of both of these disorders or, or, or similar or a mast cell activation syndrome is another one that um, mm. I've, I've heard many um, where I have to say kind of interesting, do they all have it wrong with diagnosis or do they all have it right? Or some of those at least. And, and I guess for me, I can't help but see an, an brain system or body system that has a tendency to overshoot and overreact when it gets triggered off. Um, so certainly there, I think there's some fascinating similarities between those different groups of disorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to mention that, that mast cell activation syndrome, the, the patient picture looks very similar to some of these FND patients. So it does really make me totally, wonder. Totally. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm curious on, yeah, well, you mentioned it's a, it's not very uh, well viewed by the mainstream yet. Um, I want to just dive into a bit of the, the context and the history. Like it, FND has been known by many other names over the, over the centuries and probably contributed mm-hmm. to some of the, the stigma around it. Um, yeah. Do you think that's contributed to, to why it's maybe not that well known yet? Totally, totally, yeah. And I think health professionals have a lot to answer for and I think we've done a lot of harm to patients with that and we have to make really sure and be careful that we don't burn that term FND either and have to go start from square one again yeah. um, later in the course. And I'll give you a few examples about it as well. So just for the listeners, um, other words or terminology that have been used in the past, and uh, most of those I hate with a passion to various various degrees, <laughs> are things like hysteria, which people might have might have heard uh, in the past. That kind of that's from Charcot old um, founders of of neurology times or conversion disorder which was coined by Sigmund Freud so the founder of of psychiatry or people use the term non-organic or or medically unexplained um, disorders or as I mentioned beforehand um, pseudo seizures for for um, people with dissociative attacks and most of those I think are clearly awful terms and clearly inappropriate for example hysteria kind of this this idea that it's a wandering womb in the body that's causing it, obviously can be rubbish and <laughs> thank God we moved on from that. So uh, that's good. Um, some other terms I can probably see partly where people come from and in some 
cases or to understand part of that, that I guess makes sense for me. And one of those is conversion disorder. Keep in mind, though, you're talking to a neurologist here. But the gist of that is what Sigmund Freud's theory was back then, that in patients with conversion disorder, they have underlying often childhood, childhood trauma that uh, occurred to them. And that then later in life gets converted into um, um, physical symptoms. And he said, oh, those people, they have conversion disorder. And while that is probably the case in some patients, let's even say probably the case in many of the patients in different subgroups, it clearly is not the case in all the patients. And there are many people who develop FND who never had a trauma in their life. And I think it's clearly grossly oversimplifying what actually happens in the brain when people get get those kind of symptoms. Um, so I don't think it's it's an appropriate term to use. Um, I kind of get as well when people um, talk about medically unexplained symptoms or, or, or non-organic disorders. And I guess from the doctor point of view, they're often kind of sitting on a fence because they're like, oh, we just want to use some words to explain these kind of things. But I guess human nature kicks in then. And human nature is we need to know what we're dealing with. We need mm -hmm. to know what's going on. And that not knowing doesn't sit easy with any of us human beings. And you imagine if you sit in the patient's chair and the doctor just tells you, oh, yeah, yeah, you've got a medically unexplained symptom. So the patient thinks things like, well, yeah, great. So basically you have no idea what's wrong with me. And that's not good. I need, I need to know what's wrong with me. I need, you know, I need some answers here. So I think for those reasons, I, I don't like those terms either. And why that term FND is clearly not perfect. I think a few features of that for me help a lot. One is it actually explains what it is rather than just use a fancy term and that no one knows what's going on. So functional neurological disorder, meaning your central nervous system is not irreparably damaged, but intermittently not functioning properly, properly anymore. Boom. You're like, oh yeah, Guess that, that's what's actually happening with me as a patient. That kind of gives people some answers. And the other thing I like with that, it doesn't judge on underlying drivers. Cause I think a lot of harm has been done in the past right. with this, real judgment of either you're just banging it on or you're malingering or oh god you just kind of you're just anxious or depressed or oh god it's just one of those childhood trauma again leave me in peace i can't deal with that um well i don't want to ridicule any of that that is harmful and awful and for many people plays a significant role but for many it doesn't and i like with the term fnd that it doesn't it just describes the diagnosis without judging on underlying drivers. Yeah. Um, on a similar vein, um, and we discussed off air about how we both um, loved uh, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan's book, Sleeping Beauties. Mm -hmm. It's a fabulous book, and I'll put some links to that, where she documents um, many cases in, in particularly sort of geographic locations. But throughout the, the, the book, there's this theme about the biopsychosocial model of illness. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder also... Um, in Western medicine, we sort of go down in our silos of neurology and pathology or status psychology, and it's all about the trauma. Um, yeah. It seems like this illness sort of spans all those domains, um, and maybe sort of because it's so vague, it's it's hard to sort of pin down. So my question is, um, I've heard you mention the importance of the biopsychosocial model. Um, so can you reiterate that and maybe where some of the gaps are in sort of, you know, our current sort of sure. silos? Yeah. yeah, no, totally. And actually that you mentioned it, I think is really interesting because that's for me, one of the reasons why I love working in an area because those old boundaries all break down in F and D this, this old, Oh no, 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 no. I'm a neurologist for that. You have to go to a psychiatrist. Oh no, 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 not to a psychiatrist for that. You have to go to the physio. No, you need to go to a psychologist. These are brain disorders. We, we all, we all have our, our things to add for these patients and our bits of expertise to add, but we all need to work together for these patients. And I really love that in a, in a good team that looks after people with FND, how those old boundaries are completely breaking down, which I, I think is a beautiful development to see. And I think that's something we should see more in other areas of yeah. medicine as well. Yeah. I, I think with the beautiful developments we've made over the last few decades, there's a, a lot of trouble and harm done uh, with that. But the other question he had was about the biopsychosocial model. and 
bear with me. Sorry, a big word. Yeah. I try to break it down as much as I can. But I think to a degree, we should accept complexity as well in disorders. I, I think, I guess, FND is one of those areas where, where we need to learn that oversimplifying sometimes is not the right approach. And I, I always call that a Donald Trump approach, you know, come up <laughs> with really simple answers for really complex circumstances. Yeah. And while that might be appealing initially, most of us would agree, like those really complex things happening. Oh, yeah, just build a wall to to Mexico. <laughs> well, it kind of doesn't cut it. There's there's more complexities to it that doesn't doesn't quite work. So I think FND is one of those areas that teaches us, okay, to really progress from where we are now over the next years and decades, we need to kind of embrace that complexity a bit more compared to what we do with current levels of medicine with that. And so along that line, then, what does this biopsychosocial model mean? That tries to describe underlying factors why people might develop functional symptoms or functional neurological disorders. And so I'll break it down for you and I'll give you a few examples for, for each of those as well. And um, if you're interested, I'll give you a few numbers. And I think particularly for the um, psychological factors is interesting for mm. people to have some numbers for that as well. So why people get, get functional um, symptoms has biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors. And amongst those are some predisposing ones that make people vulnerable to ones developing uh, towards developing functional symptoms. They are triggering factors and they are what's called perpetuating factors. So these are factors that prevent people from improving, getting better once they developed um, symptoms. And I'll give you a few examples for each of those. So biological factors for me, for example, I'm convinced that genetic factors mm. that make at least people more prone, more, more vulnerable towards developing functional symptoms. Research is ongoing, but I'm sure we're going to show that there are um, several genetic factors that make people more vulnerable towards it. Um, mentioned beforehand, software disturbance in FND or paperwork damage makes you more prone as well. So literally every organic brain disorder, strokes, MS, Parkinson's, you name it, they all have higher rates of functional symptoms compared to the normal population. So you think in this computer we have there, if you break one of the cables, well, the software is going to be more likely to glitch around that um, cable work disturbance. So biological factors, what are the psychological factors? I guess the big ticket items we always talk about are depression, anxiety, and previous trauma. And while these clearly are factors i think it's important to have some balance mm. to how common they are as well and i'll give you some numbers around that so across the board with fnd the rate of anxiety and depression is about 50 to 60 percent of patients so clearly a risk factor clearly more common than the normal population but if you do your maths as well well that means 40 to 50 percent do not have mm. depression and anxiety. So meaning not no, no, you don't have to be anxious to get FND and you don't have to be depressed to get FND. But yes, these can be risk factors for you to develop FND later in life. Um, the other thing is trauma and it depends a bit um, on different types of functional symptoms. But the group with the highest rate of underlying trauma are people with dissociative attacks. So what they what people used to call non epileptic seizures. Right. And amongst that group probably the rate of significant trauma in the past is up to 70 percent so big big risk mm. factor but also even with that then even in that group means 30 percent of those patients develop fnd or dissociative attacks without any underlying trauma so no you haven't don't have to have experienced trauma in your life to develop fnd and give you some examples for the social factors as well the social factors i guess are stressors in the broadest sense so stress more like in think of pushing the system so there might be might be stress at work that might be physical stress that might be um, um stress with with the partner stress with kids pushing the system you think if your brain network's already not firing on all cylinders anymore already struggling and you keep pushing right. that along pushing it along at some point something will go and the system will snap so bio psycho social um uh, framework i think for me that makes a lot of sense to see that it's not as simple as oh you're just anxious and that's why i get fnd 
and probably a good analogy if you allow me to give that as well for people to to kind of have a better grasp for themselves but also for discussions with patients is if you look at the analogy of heart attacks and strokes where sadly most of us know someone with heart attacks and strokes or know of someone with heart attacks and strokes and for those kind of disorders we accept that there are lots of different factors why people might develop a heart attack we all know smoking is bad mm. but guess what you can get a heart attack with ever smoking without ever yep. smoking a cigarette in your life we know blood pressure is bad and diabetes is bad and and cholesterol is bad and bad genes are risk factor so we know all that but we we, we all know a friend who dropped dead age 30 whilst running a marathon never smoked a cigarette in his life and we all know uncle johnny or benny 95 years old, two packs a day over the last 50 years and still alive and kicking. But we accept for ourselves, yeah, fair enough though. There's probably a few risk factors. I probably should take it easy, stop the ciggies, <laughs> look after myself, lose some weight, where we know there are factors we can control. And I think that's kind of that balanced view I want people to have that yeah. for every patient, there are several different underlying factors that probably contribute to them developing functional symptoms. Yeah, love it. On that note around complexity and stresses, um, I had the question around some I've, I've heard argue or suggest maybe some of this is adaptive, like um, that because mm -hmm. of social reasons, they can't speak out, so the body's sort of throwing off symptoms to prevent them from overexerting themselves, or is it just more like this sort of allostatic overload type principle with just a lot of stress going on and, and you know, it starts to glitch is there any any thoughts around mm. is it a maybe a feature rather than a sort of a, a bug um proposition yeah i think i think bit of though bit of both but but i do think it's a feature that's kind of gone yeah. wrong a bit if yeah. that makes sense so probably one good analogy to think about as well if if you take the example of dissociative attacks so people with when the brain just switches off kind of blank out unresponsive or or, or um have seizure like kind of events and a good way of looking at that is think brain overload switch gone mm, wrong. Mm. So that's how their brains learn to respond when they get too overloaded, ramp up, ramp up, ramp up, until at some point the brain's just like, oh, can't handle this, switch off, reboot. You kind of can see how a brain that kind of constantly gets overloaded at some point, that's how the brain learns to respond, as you say, as an adaptive mechanism. And I can kind of see how the brain on some instances of these brains are like, oh, they don't know what else to do, how else to respond apart from switching off. So I, I get it, how brains can learn to respond that way. But most of us would say, though, in most instances, of course, uh, at least we're not a very functioning way mm. of learning, uh, learning to respond that way. So, so I think adaptive for my concept, I would very much agree. Yeah, but more like adaptive and at some point gone wrong. Yeah. And I think along those lines, what is really interesting when I talk to my patients, particularly once they learn more about underlying mechanisms, underlying drivers, for the vast majority, if not all the patients, once they learn more about it, they come back afterwards and they're like, mm, yeah, now in hindsight, that's been brewing for a while. Yeah. Whereas yeah. initially they might be like, ah, oh, I was completely fine until that day. And that's when it happens. And as they learn more about it, they're like, yeah, I must say, I think it's been brewing for a while. I got away with it. I could stretch that system, stretch it, push it, push it, push it until at some point, something in the network rips and then the flick, the switch goes and then they get in trouble. Yeah, that makes but sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of there's an adaption to a point until the brain can't handle it anymore. Yeah. So on that note about speaking to your patients, what also I found curious, interesting, looking at other reports and research and anecdotes is um, maybe there's a stigma behind that as well about this sort of functional and that that sort of stereotype that essentially almost made it up. But um, it sounded like mm -hmm. some patients almost would have preferred, a, you know, plain old epilepsy or why can't it be Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. rather than, you know, this mm -hmm. weird thing. Mm -hmm. How do your patients, um, how do you broach it and how do your patients respond? Do you have any patients that sort of... Yeah. Uh, antagonistic to the idea it's only functional and they want more tests to prove yeah. that there's a, a problem with the cables. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I completely get where you're coming from and, and I think it's a problem overall in society and it's 
a problem, particularly I think how our Western medical world has has developed in in at least recent decades, I guess, where anything that's psycho or psychiatric or, or mental health or anything remotely suggestive of that is kind of rejected. That's basically that means you're soft, mm. you're banging it on and kind of just it's all just in your head and now leave leave us in peace. And what I often feel think for patients, how can we expect patients to be normal about that if we are so weird about it as doctors? And I think the main first thing is for me, for the vast majority of patients, if us as doctors can see this as real and genuine and explain it to patients as we would any other disorder, the vast majority of patients I see are super grateful, super grateful they finally got an answer and um, they know what to work on and some guidance in what to do about it. Um, kind of this real rejection I see rarely. I still do as well and totally, and I guess there's still people who anything that's soft or potentially showing oh so this kind of reflects that i've got some weakness in in my brain or in in, in my mental health or so anything i could su suggest that um is refused and rejected but i think the main issue is actually us health professionals not yeah, okay. not yeah. patients and i think along those lines um not at all that i'm saying f and is a mental health disorder um but i guess with that analogy we learn more and more about actual mental health disorders like depression and anxiety that nowadays as well have much less, thank God, of a mm. stigma than they had 10 or 20 years ago. So I see developments certainly go in the right direction uh, with that as well. Yeah. But I think we need to lose weirdness about these kind of disorders and approach them and accept them as real and genuine. And just coming back before we step before and as well with how, how our Western health has developed. I think this, there's a lot to answer for from that because we nowadays so machine and test driven where mm. us doctors often have de-skilled as well. Like I went to med school to learn to, you know, examine patients and take histories and make diagnoses based on that. And then we actually start working and, and then real world is not like that. In real world, patients just come in you have like what feels like five minutes for an assessment and you're like, oh, here you go. Have your ECG and your MRI and your EEG and those blood tests and then come back again. And we forget those old, old school clinical skills of being able to make a diagnosis based on history and examination. And I think the more that's driven from us because we feel uncomfortable if we don't have that. I think the same happens for patients as well when they come in that they expect or just do the scan, do the blood test and show me what's abnormal with me. And then we come along with F and D and well, there is no scan mm. or blood tests. It kind of takes those old school clinical um, skills to make those diagnoses again. And what are the, the telltale signs just on that? Are the experts in the field really strongly stress that it's not a diagnosis of exclusion. There are some yeah. key clues that suggest FND. Yeah, totally. I think that's so important to get that across to people. And even amongst health professionals, even nowadays, even amongst neurologists, it's still very much perceived as a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning oh, we've done like every test we can think of twice. And none of those gave us an answer. And it's those really weird symptoms. And at the end, we're like, oh, it's probably one of those kind of FND things. And as you can imagine, Diagnosing that way does not give the doc doctor any confidence in a diagnosis and certainly does not give the patient any uh, confidence in a diagnosis when you're like, well, hang on, but what, what if you've done the wrong test or what if the test just wasn't good enough? Maybe the scan wasn't detailed enough or, or the blood test, you know, kind of that borderline abnormality is actually important and you just said it's not important. So that's not how it should be diagnosed. FND can be diagnosed on based on hard positive signs and really in in a clinic room or in a hospital bed for the majority of patients we can diagnose um, these things based on hard positive signs and the two hallmark features we look for are inconsistencies and incongruities and i explain those to you as well and to the listeners so inconsistencies also means internal inconsistencies and for example there might be in case of a functional tremor a tremor that's there one moment but then if someone's distracted away, for example, the tremor goes away, 
or weakness in a body part that's there one moment that then but then with another type of movement that weakness improves or, or, or resolves completely whereas if you think well if this was organic as in cable work damage someone let's say someone severed a nerve to let's say your leg well that nerve is either gone or not gone if that nerve yeah. cuts there's no information going to go through there anymore whereas in someone with functional weakness if weakness is there one moment but with another type of testing that power returns well you know it's not going to be the cable work that's the problem you know the problem is communication between brain and that part of the body so that's inconsistency and the other one which i appreciate is a bit more difficult for non non-specialists is incongruity and what we mean with that is incongruity with recognized neurological diseases right. and i guess with that a lot of what we do in medicine is pattern recognition yeah not only in nuance in, in all, all areas of med of medicine and what we learned as doctors in, in neurology when we trained is like oh, to see what are the patterns that we see that fit with our cable work in the uh, in the body so if you have damage to that part of the cable work let's say the bundle of nerves going down connecting your brain to your right arm and the damage is at the level of your neck or, or, or your shoulder there are certain rules that need to be followed. And the rules are, well, things downstream of the damage should not work anymore, and things upstream of the damage should still work, and everything that branches off that cable work somewhere else before the damage should still work. And so there are certain rules of cable work damage that need yeah. to be followed. And if that those rules are broken, you're like, well, hang on, that can't be the cable work damage, then that needs to be something else. And so for patients with FND, we can make this these diagnoses based on these positive signs, which one hopefully gives the doctor confidence in a diagnosis as well, because they know, well, I've showed to myself why, why this is there, not there. But I think even more importantly, gives the patients confidence in a diagnosis. Because many of my patients, I can show them as I make the diagnosis in the clinic room directly. Can, can you see your, your tremors, how you had them? And all I did then kind of distracted you away. Can you look at your hand again, how the tremor was mm -hmm. gone? And can you see it comes back again now? So that's something for the patient and family and whoever else is important for them. They can actually see themselves then that this is the correct diagnosis. And with that, hopefully gives them some hint already how to work on that and how to retrain their system later then. Fascinating. So yeah, I'm going to use that as a segue um, to treatment. So you mentioned their distraction um, it sounds like a technique you employ. What else? Um, it sounds just like the biopsychosocial model. It sounds like a holistic, um, whatever works sort of um, mindset. Yeah, yeah. You're employing physiotherapy. Are you employing um, psychiatry or psychology and then your um, distraction and so forth? So can you paint a picture of the, the spectrum and the, the, the modalities that sure, you sure, employ? Sure. Yeah. So for totally multidisciplinary is the way to go. Absolutely. And for the majority of patients, that means combination of physiotherapy and psychological therapy. And the way I look at it and the way I explain it to patients as well, because again, coming back to what we said beforehand, many patients, when you mentioned the psychology word, they're like, Oh my God, what, what, hang on, what, I'm not going to sit someone with someone on the, on the bench and just talk about my childhood. And that's not the approach of, of FND treatment, the approach of FND treatment, can we work with you to retrain those brain pathways? And can we work with you to reconnect the brain, so the computer with the, with the body and, and, and the rest of the, of the system? And I guess with that, there's two ways you can tackle that from. You can tackle that from a more body physical, as in physiotherapy end of a spectrum, yep. and more a brain computer uh, retraining psychology end of a spectrum and we've learned a lot over the years about that so in the very old days when I started my first FND clinic I literally would pick I would pick depending on the patient say oh yeah that one I sent through to a physio and um, that one I'll send you through um, send you through to a psychologist and, and so on whereas nowadays if at all possible for all of our patients we want both both together we think there's some real synergy between both of those and what I really love along those lines as well, none of that is rocket science, by the way, but what I love with that is what I mentioned before and already as well, that those boundaries go away. So our physios are very comfortable with psycho psychological techniques. Our psychologists 
are very comfortable with physiotherapy techniques and actually within our core team that we work together we actually meet up once a week and discuss every single patient we have currently in in our um, system and really to try to fine-tune it the physio might be like oh I worked with John last week and that worked well, but I think he really struggles with, with those kind of techniques and those tools. Okay. Psychologist, can you tackle that bit further next time as well to really work together with that in a truly multidisciplinary approach, I think yeah. is absolute key It's possible. And surely it's not possible for, for everybody, depending on resources. I should mention psychiatry as well. I work with some amazing psychiatrists, but the, key for treatment is not psychiatry so for people because as we said beforehand not every patient mm. or significant proportion of patients do not have underlying severe mental health disturbances that uh, warrant psychiatry input so for me the vast majority of patients i do not send to psychiatrists um, or at least not initially to psychiatrists for me psychiatrists role are particularly then if there are significant mental health problems that can really drive symptoms. And I guess the ticket item with that would be, for example, really high levels of, of anxiety, where I do think some patients where with sky high levels, levels of anxiety that really kind of puts that brain in a red alert state, they sometimes need psychiatry input to get that brain a bit more settled to basically allow them then to do the therapy and retraining they need to do. Yeah, okay. Um, and one other area I noticed with the treatment, um, which may differ from maybe other, you know, therapies, is this idea of that the patient is like actively engaged and they mm -hmm. seem to be central and, and um, equal and, and part of the process mm -hmm. rather than you know take some antibiotics and wait for them to kick in, sort of thing. Um, yeah. Is there like this, yeah, this focus on the patient also being really engaged in the process? Yeah, and, I, and again, I, I love that with FND. I love that with the area we're working where I want our patients to be part of a treating team. I want them to be so good with their understanding that they are truly an active member of the treating team and basically can be at eye level with their, with their therapist. So I want them to be that good that they're like, ah, oh, mechanisms all over it. I, I know what's not going right in my brain at the moment. I know what I need to work on. And hopefully get to that level where they can see their psychologists and physiotherapists, for example, more like as personal trainers, kind of more to kind of coach them right. along the way rather than kind of just being at the receiving end. And none of that is fancy, but, but I really, I think it's a really beautiful and refreshing way of managing and treating patients rather than just have patients on, Oh, I don't know. I just, I just do what the doctor tells me to do. And yeah. I just do what the physio tells me to do. Um, I really like that more active approach. Yeah. It makes a real difference for outcomes, truly does. And some of the areas we've looked at in this podcast previously, some of these like emerging, you know, out, quite out there different therapies. Um, I'm just wondering if some of these could potentially act as like sort of circuit breakers, like the mm -hmm. emotional freedom technique and um, eye movement desensitization and re reprocessing. I think, um, you know, mm -hmm. psychedelics are becoming more studied. There's probably a, a bit of hype around them, but you know they do sure, sort of sure. break into those yeah. sort of networks do you have any interest or see a day where some of these may be employed oh totally i'm fascinated so i would love to do a study one day in psychedelics <laughs> and fmd i think super interested so if there's anyone out there with a bit of money i would be super keen i think there's going to be a real role um in that with other things like emdr um i'm blown away yeah. I, and again, keep in mind, keep in mind, I'm, I'm a neurologist, not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. So I've got only very superficial knowledge about the specifics of these kind of things. But um, my psychologist I work with most closely with does a lot of EMDR. And at the very beginning, I was like, come on, this is complete bollocks. <laughs> what kind of moving the eyes and kind of. So I'd probably for, for the listeners out there, I probably should explain a bit uh, if, if they don't know about it. So it's the idea is, I think it's mainly done for trauma reprocessing yeah. um and the idea is um there's uh, some eye movements training um while that reprocessing takes place and initially i thought come on complete quackery this is rubbish you've got to be kidding me i am totally converted <laughs> not this is not the holy grail this yeah. is not the fix everything absolutely not and of course needs to be the right patient and the right setting as well um, and it's even for the right patient, it needs to be the right time as well. So it's not as easy as, oh, just everyone should have EMDR. But 
I have seen results and outcomes with EMDR I did not think possible beforehand. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, totally converted oh, wow. in that regard. Um, but, but I think again, coming back to the complexity beforehand, we need to learn with this multidisciplinary approach that there needs to be a tailored, unique approach to every single patient. So it's not going to be as easy as, um, oh yeah, every patient comes in F and D diagnosis. Yeah. So you get your five sessions, this physio there, EMDR there, it not the right thing for every patient and it needs to be tailored to individual patients as well. Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Symptoms of anxiety and depression have increased significantly since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. This was the case for Rose, who had generalised anxiety for years, but suddenly began experiencing panic attacks in 2021. She said, when it happens, I feel like the world is closing in on me. It's just so out of control. In order to help quell the panic attacks, Rose was provided with herbal and nutritional support alongside professional guidance. One combination in particular, featuring magnesium, taurine, potassium and zinc, provided substantial relief. Rose referred to the effect as a melting whoosh of calmness. After just six days of targeted support, the panic attacks began to subside and she is now feeling much better. Given the circumstances, supporting a healthy stress response is now more important than ever. To learn more about the combination of magnesium, taurine, potassium and zinc, please visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now back to the podcast. All right. Um, there's one other area that I want to touch upon, which has really emerged recently. We have this um, COVID pandemic as um, the role that FMD may play in um, the reported vaccine side effects. So, um, just a bit of background, where we work with our um, clinical support team being inundated, um, probably the last, you know, this will probably date extremely, <laughs> um, you know, this is probably out in three weeks' time and Omicron, I think, sort of turned a corner. Um, who knows what it'll be in three weeks' time. But uh, late last year in 2021, whilst, you know, well, the vaccination campaigns were ramping up and many people getting vaccinated, we were inundated with calls around vaccine side effects and what to do about them. Um, and you know, I'm not in practice, but I looked into the literature and I couldn't really see a massive signal coming through that they were, um, you know, producing these side effects as much as people report. And I'm not discounting the, the what's happening there. And then I found articles on, could it be FND that's throwing off these um, um, symptoms? And there was case studies. And I think there was recently a meta-analysis suggesting a, quite a large nocebo effect um, and FND playing a part. So I just wanted to sort of preface that, like these these symptoms are real, just like FMD, like their symptoms are real. However, the neurological you know assessments haven't found any sort of damage or inflammation and so forth. Do you, yeah, have you looked into this much? What's your thoughts around, um, yeah, the, the 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 nervous system or the FMD potentially contributing to some of these adverse effects that have been reported? Mm, mm. Oh, I think fascinating. And again, I have, have those questions daily from my patients, understandably, who are very concerned about um, vaccine side effects as well. So for listeners, I'm not sure how well people know about placebo, nocebo um, effects. So I think they're actually beautiful terms um, people use. So placebo, the Latin word placebo means I shall please. Um, and the Latin word nocebo means I will be harmful. So that's really what those two words words mean. And I guess they really help us to understand how the human brain works because the human brain is very much a prediction machine. If your brain expects certain things to happen, it will work towards that. And that's how we, I guess, interact, interact with, our, with our surroundings. So if you think if you reach for a glass of water in between our podcast and want to grab that and have a drink. You kind of need to pre-plan that and need to predict how long you're going to have to reach out for until you grab that water and you roughly predict how heavy that glass of water is going to be, how much strength you need to lift it up and so on and so on. So we, that's how our brain works. We constantly predict surroundings. We constantly predict input. We constantly predict output according to that and adjust what we do according to that. But what we expect to happen is very powerful for the brain and 
rather than changing our predictions, the default by the human brain is to actually change input and output to fit in with the, within those predictions. So you can imagine then with placebo, which has such a bad rep, but I think placebo is actually really helpful, powerful thing, I guess, self-healing thing for the brain to do. If we expect good things to happen, the brain often will work towards that. And so there might be a beautiful studies done for placebo response, for example, for painkillers. If, even if you just take a sugar pill, but the brain thinks this is going to be a painkiller, um, you can get a good response and that really works well. There's amazing studies done. You might have read about um, from old war um, um, surgeons who ran, ran out of morphine. And so they just gave, gave soldiers kind of a um, salty water drip. Soldiers thought it might it's morphine in there so they could do full-on surgery, kind of cutting, on, cutting off limbs uh, with soldiers because the soldiers had this very powerful placebo response thinking there was morphine in, in their drip and helping with their, with their pain killing. So that's placebo effect. Nocebo effect kind of is the ugly cousin uh, of placebo. So nocebo effect is expecting bad things to happen. And this is nothing unique to FND. In all the drug trials, we see usually a good ballpark figure is about a third of, of responses. So if you look at side effects for drug trials, typically um, for effects that you might expect um, as a patient, a third of side effects are driven by this nocebo response where even on, on, on the sugar pill where people might get side effects because they expect certain effects to occur. So that's placebo and nocebo. And I guess then you can imagine if you have something like a COVID vaccine, could that occur as well? So if people expect side effects to happen, could they be more likely? And and you alluded to it before, and there's some amazing studies done from, from the COVID vaccine trials where it appears to be across the board about two-thirds of side effects are due to a nocebo response um, in, in, in those trials, which I think for me makes a lot of sense. But mm. I guess I want people to dig in a bit deeper than just black and white, or oh, this is all nocebo or nothing nocebo, particularly with the things we discussed already over the last um, hour or so. Um, I think I, I want people to think in, in, in shades of gray more and, and other areas that might be contributing. So if you, for example, have a system, a body, a brain that is more prone towards an overshooting response, well, you're probably more prone towards getting in trouble with that. So if you think for, for the COVID vaccine, what we want to achieve is what well, we want to inject something into, into your body to trigger off an immune response. But that's the whole point. If you don't get a response yeah. at all, no point of having the vaccine. So what you want to have is a immune response. So you can imagine then in some people, what one, could that immune response overshoot? Certainly possible. Or two, if you have an immune response and your system is already not firing all cylinders, could that trigger off for example, flares of functional symptoms than, than in your case. Um, and I think that's absolutely possible as well. So what I tell my patients with that, not I got all the answers for that is rather than um, saying, oh, oh my God, I just hope I don't get any side effects from the, from the vaccine thinking, look, the chances if you got FND, you probably have a system that's more prone towards over-responding, more, more, more prone towards kind of overreacting to certain triggers. The chances you're probably prone towards or more prone than a normal population towards get, getting um, side effects from, from a vaccine, for example, the COVID vaccine, rather than just desperately hoping you might get away without it, I guess face it and accept it and work with it. And so what I usually tell my patients then is to prepare for it. So what I don't want you to do is then, right. oh, yeah. You get your vaccine quickly, really stressful day, quickly get the injection and then off to work afterwards and then push, push, push. What I want you to do is say more like, okay, look, I'm more prone towards it. Maybe I book myself and then for the Friday afternoon for the vaccine, don't line anything up for the Saturday and Sunday. So if need be, I can take those days to kind of just ride out the wave a bit and ride out the flare a bit afterwards. Um, maybe even prepare partner, family, look, if I have a bad flare, can you guys be ready and, and um, help me kind of cover that flare and, and work through it? 
I think that's a much more realistic and much more pragmatic way of dealing with these things rather than just hoping, well, I just hope I don't get any troubles from this. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's fascinating. I like that approach, sort of ride the wave. I was probably more wondering um, sort of to, to move into that area that um, Dr. Suzanne Sullivan talks about this sort of, you know, this mass sort of psychogenic illness where maybe it's part of that allostatic overload. I'm curious on um, people, I'm sure they're not deliberately like, you know, worrying themselves into it, but with all the, and we get in this sort of, these sort of, you know, um, tribes about it's it's all bad or it's all good, as you said, mm-hmm. like um, sort of trying to remove yourself or, you know, reduce your sort of allostatic load going into it that, that would, you know, would that reduce your risk? I, I do like that idea of like, just accept that it, it might happen and just ride mm-hmm. with it. Is there anything um, around, you know, like you're trying to distract your brain with other FNDs? Can you somehow distract your subconscious not to sort of yeah, yeah. be hyper vigilant? I don't know. Hard to avoid at the moment, of course, because whatever. Yeah, no. for you, yeah, exactly. every discussion you have with anyone, at some point, COVID comes up. Anything you switch on a TV, at some point, it's very hard to avoid the thing. And uh, um, probably important for people to understand as well what you alluded to before in this. Um, actually, again, I hate that term, a mass psychogenic illness or mass hysteria. Yeah, no, I was trying to think um, of something in other... I know, and it's, it's still used, and I guess we don't have a better term at the moment, um, but it's a phenomenon. And I guess, again, for people, think brain as a prediction machine, and we're tribal animal, animals, that's that's how we are. So if, if we see certain events happening around us, um, we expect certain things happening to us as well. So those outbreaks of uh, mass psychogenic illnesses are, are not that rare across the world. There's nothing, and there's nothing mm-hmm. unique to the Western world, by the way, it happens um, yeah. in any, any parts of it's the world. Um, and I think it's just the way um, our human brain works. If it starts pre- predicting and starts expecting certain, certain things to occur um, for us, but it's, I completely get where you're coming from, but I just think at the moment with the craziness that is COVID in our world and in the news as probably a tough one to completely blank out isn't yeah. it you kind of <laughs> need to point. move to a remote island somewhere i think <laughs> um just one other concept i, I forgot to ask and we'll wrap it in a second you mentioned the couple areas that really piqued my interest was that that predictive coding where the um the body sort of the brain sort of based off priors and things what's going to happen that's how it unfolds the other concept i've heard about is this idea about looping or this sort of mm-hmm. hyper vigilance like oh i've got a twink- tingle in my foot Mm. now all i'm doing is focusing on that tingle mm-hmm. and that tingle becomes more yeah. permanent yeah. um yeah is that something that that is important and how do you break that cycle yeah totally totally and i think all of these things and again comes back down to uh, what i think what we're going to see or clearly what we see now already with fnd it's not as easy as oh that's the one thing that's wrong in your brain to get fnd we just need to fix that what we do see there in most patients multiple vulnerabilities that kind of contribute to the development of that and then to contribute to brain networks starting to being imbalanced and, and misfiring. And the two things you alluded to there as well is one is abnormally focused attention, kind of this over-focus on, on certain things where really important for us to, of course, attend and focus on things. But I'm sure we've all seen if we focus too much on stuff, we can get in real trouble as well. And I guess mm-hmm. one is probably you're seeing Rarely, but even for for professional athlete, athletes, when they start choking, you know, under pressure and, and get in trouble, when you know, the golf the golfer on his last hole on the whatever master somewhere, or the tennis player on match point, where if you put a system really in the pressure and put a lot of attention onto it, we often get really bad. And um, probably for all of you, you've noticed those things as well. I think a really good example with this abnormal conscious attention um, causing things going wrong would be swallowing. I think it's a really good one. And particularly swallowing tablets. Um, Because I think lots of people can relate to that where we swallow all day, every day, automatically, don't have to think about that. We can, you know, trigger off a a conscious swallow, but usually done automatically, don't have to think about it. And believe it or not, we produce two liters of saliva every day, all of us. And that's just swallowed away automatically. But Many of us, when we have to swallow tablets, really get in trouble. And stupid me, I often still buy those really cheap paracetamols. You know, the one that kind of, as soon as you put them in the mouth, they get get all funny and I find them really hard to swallow. And what happens with that is we have this over-focus, this 
abnormally strong focus of trying to override this swallow and get those tablets down and really start struggling with that. And as soon as we finally get the tablet down, back to normal life, back to dinner, just use our normal swallow again, no problem at all. So I guess that's a good example how this abnormal attention can cause troubles. And the other one is the feedback. And there's some amazing studies done in recent um, uh, years as well. There's one really cool study done where they uh, looked at normal volunteers and put volunteers' arms in casts. So just use the dominant arm <laughs> and put it in a long cast. And they did then what's called functional MRI scans, which sounds really fancy, but it's actually a really simple principle. And so the principle is that normal MRI scanners, but the signal in certain MRI sequences changes in certain parts of the brain, depending how much blood flow you get into that part of the brain. And the idea being, if a part of the brain needs to do a lot of work, it needs more oxygen, needs more blood, yeah. so more blood flows into that part. If it, a brain, certain part of the brain does less work, it has less blood flow to that part of the brain. Um, and the signal changes in those brain skin, depending on those. So basically, you can actually look at brain activity, what's more active or less active for those. And so for those patients, normal volunteers, well, not patients, normal volunteers put an arm in the cast, and then they looked at the parts of the brain that are in charge of controlling that part of the body. So let's say you have your right arm in the cast, the parts of the sensory and motor system that are in charge of controlling that, that right arm. And they could see within two days, even in normal, normal people of having that arm in the cast, that part of the brain starts disconnecting from the rest of the brain. Yeah, right. So those feedback things happen very quickly in all of us already. So you can imagine if something goes wrong in the system, the brain changes very quickly already with that. And what they did show in, in, in that study in Norman Volunteers, so within two days, that starts changing already. And that normalizes very quickly, though, once the brain, once the arm got out of the cast and, and kind of they could move it all right again. But you can imagine how fast it happens. And you can imagine if it stays like that, how then at some point those brain rewiring processes really get stuck and they get harder and harder to change back to the, okay. to the normal path. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fascinating. Incredible. All right. Um, you've been super generous with your time and we've had our own software glitches today. So hopefully <laughs> we can um, stitch it all together. Um, no it's been a bit of touch and go with our technology. But um, just to wrap up, so yeah, I suppose, um, yeah, practitioners if they're and patients alike, if they're interested in finding out more, I know you're really passionate about this area. You've done a lot of work. What's some of the next steps people can take to find out more? So I'm really keen for... All of us, and with that I mean health professionals with interest in FND, um, researchers, other lay people with interest in FND, patients, their families, kind of as the FND movement, we need to push the agenda. We need to get word out. I think education is a key thing for all of us. And human beings, if we don't know and feel out of their depth, we usually get very weird. Um, and it's for all of them, there's nothing unique to health professionals. So I think just getting more knowledge out would be really important. And we all can work um, together with that. And needless to say, we need more resources for these patients. These are so common and so disabling. And at the moment, there's just nothing out there. So um, we need to work together. And there might be letters to health, to, to health ministers, to local MPs, to whatever it takes. We need to get the word out, word out and get some more um, resources to help people with FND more. Probably a good starting point for people that just want to learn a bit more about it is um, our website, FND Australia, and truly nothing fancy to it. So it's no www, just FND Australia, one word, .com.au. And we initially started a website just to connect health professionals with interest in FND so they can find other health professionals to refer to. But then we realized, as we discussed today, how important it is for patients to and, and and their families to learn more about it and understand more about it. So we put a few educational videos on there with what we think are the key aspects about the diagnosis that people need to learn. And they're really nothing fancy, like a minute each, um, but the, um, the key features of FND there. So those videos are probably a good starting point for, uh, for most people. And we put a few PDFs up there as well about uh, um, key aspects of FND. And hot in, not quite out of the press, hot in the press at the moment, um, one of the 
beautiful nurses I work with, Vince Chia, is just working on two online learning programs, one for health professionals and one for patients about FND. And we've got it ready. There's just a bit of fine tuning to do. So hopefully within the next week or two, we can actually get those up and running as well. And they will be in FND Australia as well. So the idea is just to have something interactive for people to learn more about FND and they will be on there. For other people who want to dig in a bit further, I think the website by John Stone is amazing. The world's best oh, yeah. website. So it's neurosymptoms.org. So again, no www, just neurosymptoms.org. And for patients here in Australia, the two main patient support organizations who are very active are FND Hope. Um, I'm not sure about the website. I assume it's fndhope.org. And then the other one is FND Australia Support Services. And again, um, you might have to look up Nathan, the, the, um, the exact yeah, link for yeah. that. Uh, but they're both very good, very supportive, really do a lot for, for um, patient support across the country. Brilliant. Well, it sounds like, um, Alex, you've been instrumental in promoting the, the, the cause and the campaign so far. And I, I'm sure you'll probably be leading the charge moving forward and hopefully become a household name in the future. And FND becomes, you know, recognises it should. So, yeah, I really wanted to say thanks. It's been a privilege to um, speak to you. I, I love the way you communicate and your knowledge and your passion and that, and that balance really um, comes through strongly. So thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I think we've come a long way the last few years, but I know a lot more work to do for all of us to hopefully um, improve diagnosis, improve treatment for patients with FMD. But I can see a lot of really positive changes in recent years as well. So it's not, not all bad. Not all bad. Thanks for having me. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.